Welcome, welcome again to another rendition of WTF Interviews. My name is Sir Royce Briales with my prestigious co-host, Dr. Raheem Young. How's it going, brother? All is well, man. How are things on your end? Uh, no complaints over here, man. Just uh, bracing for this cold. It's, it's another, another cold one out here. Uh, but that's okay, man. We're staying warm out here. It's supposed to be 60 tomorrow, though. Really? Yeah. See? Man, see? That's, that's that get get uh get sick weather, man. <laughs> but uh no, we're gonna be prepared for it. But uh we also on the line we have a special guest, uh Brian O. Buckley. How's it going, brother? Not too bad. Not too bad. How are you guys? Oh man, doing well. Doing well. Uh so yeah, again, thanks for uh, taking the time out to join us. Uh First question we normally ask is uh, how many kids you got, but uh, we tried a conversation before. You mentioned you didn't have any kids, not yet at least, but uh, that's okay. Yeah, not not yet, not yet. <laughs> yeah, not yet. <laughs> so, uh, Brian, if you could tell us a little bit more about what you do you know, for a living or for a purpose. Oh, man, that's deep for a purpose. Um, so let me start with the easy one. What do I do for a living? Who's paying the bills? So. Um, I am a fellow with the MedStar Health, which is a large academic health system in the DC, Maryland area. And so I specifically, I work in the Institute for Quality and Safety, and that pretty much focuses on translational research when it comes to patient safety, quality, and equity. And then on the second note, I also am an assistant professor in medicine at Georgetown University School of Medicine, where I teach a class in change management community partnerships, um, and overall still patient safety and quality there as well. And so those are the two things that really are the things I do that pay the bills that get me kind of going. But I think when you said that second one, what my purpose is, that's like a deeper level. And I always tell people like uh, my own personal vision statement for myself, and I think you've heard this before, is to exhaust my talents as a nexus for change through my blessings, failures, and community. And so when I think about my purpose, it's really about how do we improve the health and well-being of where people live, work, and play. And I can only do that through my community, my failures, and my blessings. So, um, and through that, I have kind of gotten myself involved in a lot of different things, whether it's working with the American Heart Association, the DC area, with the American Public Health Association, and all those things kind of give me my fuel in life and really fuel that purpose for me. Now, that's pretty dope, man. How did you, um, like, what made you want to get into, like, um, health and quality? Yeah, well, health, uh, the getting to public health was kind of like a it wasn't a traditional path. So it wasn't like one of those people that like, you know, woke up one day in college and was like, I want to do public health and go work on my doctorate and everything like that. Mm-hmm. I kind of came through it in this kind of like weird way. Um, so when I first started college, it was like, hey, I want to be a doctor, um, like every other kid. And soon after doing that, I realized I wasn't really doing it for me. I was kind of living my father's dream of him, him his own aspirations of wanting to be a doctor. And I was like, you know, I need to kind of find my own way, my own purpose. And then that's when I started getting, I had a really good professor that actually turned me on to public health. And um, from there, I just got 
completely embraced with public health, working to my master's in public health, got to work for the Michigan Public Health Association, ended up writing the, I was also one of the authors of the Flint Water Crisis, our response to the Flint Water Crisis, because I was in Michigan at the time, and then ended up being, going to go do my doctorate of public health at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, you know, one of the premier public health institutions, and it just kind of just became this big thing of where I really found what my purpose and my passion was, and um, being able to just um, really work on how do we improve health and well-being. Wow, that's, that's, uh, that's interesting. So you mentioned uh, your dad being a doctor. What kind of doctor was he? So he wasn't necessarily a doctor. He had always aspired to be a doctor. And so, um, you know, that whole adage where a lot of parents try to kind of have their kids leave, live their dreams to some degree. And so he had always wanted to become a doctor. And um, and, you know, as growing up as a kid, you know, I'm the firstborn, um, you know, you, you look up to your dad and, you know, he's always talking about this dream. And so in uh, some way earlier in my childhood, I was like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to shoulder this for you, father. I'm going to start doing this for you. But then at one point you start to lose fuel when it's not necessarily your dream. And that's when college hit, and especially when that organic chemistry hit. I was like, I don't think his dream can fulfill what I need to do in life at this moment. So I was like, I'm going to have to find what actually gives me fuel to keep on going. Mm. Can you talk about your relationship with your dad? Yeah, so relation with my dad. Uh, so my dad and I are very both similar and very different. So I grew up, just to give some context, I grew up in a Caribbean background. So both my parents are immigrants. So my dad is from St. Kitts, Nevis, but his father is from Antigua, where my mom is from, Antigua. So everything comes back to Antigua. So, you know, a typical kind of Caribbean household my dad was a very hard worker. Um, in many ways, he was kind of the, um, kind of, there's a, a large history of uh, males in my family. And my grandfather, we can talk about that later, but he's also been a pretty big inspiration as well. But always had a good relationship with my dad. In many ways, we're, I would say we're kind of competitive to some degree. So I ended up um, getting involved when I was in high school, I got involved in track because my dad was in track and I was like, okay, I think I can beat you in a race. So it just always became this competitive thing. I went to the same high school he did. I went to a military Catholic high school and the whole goal I had was like, I'm gonna beat this guy in rank. And so there's always been this really big kind of competitive nature that we've always had, but always this really good camaraderie between the two of us. Um, and I think now that I'm getting a lot older now, it's kind of like kind of like that chill where we see each other more as colleagues than we did with that kind of that hierarchy. Yeah. So are you from uh, are you from Michigan or from the D.C. area? I'm born and raised Maryland, but um, I, I like to tell people I, I was born and raised in Maryland, but I like became a man in Michigan. Um, I was in Michigan for about 12 years. Um, and oh. then moved to Boston for four years to work on my doctor. And then we moved back down to Maryland. So I've only lived in M state so far. Okay. I know that you said that you worked on um, a paper um, about uh, the Flint water crisis, right? Yeah. Can you talk about that and like um, something, I guess like how things have changed or progressed for the people that live there since yeah. you know the, that news first broke. Yeah, sure. Um, so when I, to get, um, when this, the Flint water crisis happened at the time I was working with the Michigan Health and Hospital Association, 
And I was very deeply involved with the Michigan Public Health Association, which is like the state affiliate of the American Public Health Association. And I was the policy chair at the time. And so Flint um, was slowly happening. And it's actually kind of interesting on how when you, um, when you brought that question up. So my father-in-law actually lives in Flint. And we, we go over to his house quite often. And I remember we went over to his house one time and he was like, you know, we were about to get, I was on, you know, get some water from the faucet. He was like, oh no, don't drink that water. You know, there's some issues going on with the water. You know, here's a bottle of water. And I'm like thinking, this is kind of strange. Like, why are we doing that? And I realized that I didn't realize that that was actually the, some of the early starts to the Flint water crisis. And so when it, um, when it finally blew up, you know, then there was this idea of we had to respond from the public health perspective. At the time, Governor Snyder was the governor for Michigan. And it was, okay, how are we going to respond? And how do we speak truth to power? How do we um, really acknowledge the breaking of trust that government had with the community? Um, and to the point that you said, where are they at now? Still some of those broken mm -hmm. bonds. And that really is, if anything, it's changing that narrative of how do we get people engaged in public health, engaged in government, engaged with um, really bringing awareness to the city as a whole. Um, granted, I don't live there. I'm not in Michigan anymore, so I don't know all the intricacies of what's happening right now. Um, but um, just recently, I actually got to be on a panel where we talked about counter narratives around black and brown communities in Flint and Detroit. And this idea that there needs to be a counter narrative because oftentimes when people hear and portray Flint, it's usually in the most negative way. You know, well, this is bad there, this is bad that. But, you know, I, I go there quite often. Actually, I'm going to Michigan next week to go visit my father-in-law. And Michigan and Flint have so much beauty. There's so much black excellence in Flint. And oftentimes we don't always hear those stories. And so um, I have a lot of really cool friends. Well, a good friend of mine that went to school with me, Jasmine Hall, which is just doing amazing things on building activism in the, the early career professionals around really building awareness and advocacy for public health interventions in Flint. And so, and also Dr. K is doing some amazing work there as well. And so I, I've really just been vicariously looking through some of my amazing Black excellent colleagues that have Really, they're from Flint on the ground, really working with the people um, to really build up the city. Yeah, so I can see how that can uh, kind of shape uh, shape you as a man, like going through that type of, of the experience. Like, uh, how old were you at the time when you were living in, in Michigan? Uh, I wouldn't. Uh, I don't remember exactly how old I was, but it was before. It was after I got married, so it must have been, I must have been like about 27 or so, 26, 27. I mean, it's, it is kind of weird. It does shape you up to grow up real fast because you have to, to writing a policy statement and a response, you, you have to be very, there's like this fine line of both being, you have to work with the government, but you also have to tell them, hey, you did wrong. And I remember, this is a really side story. I remember I was like, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the attorney, um, the surgeon general's office, uh, was looking to work with us, um, um, the Michigan public health association. And so, um, I'm driving back home and my friend, um, that works also with the Michigan public health association calls me. I was like, Hey, Brian, do you have like 10 minutes? The surgeon general's office wants to talk to us. 
And I remember thinking, yo, I'm like 25, 26, and the Surgeon General wants to talk to us. So that he's asking us questions on like, you know, what can be used, how can we be useful? Because at the time when the Flint water crisis first kind of ballooned out, there was too many cooks in the kitchen. So everyone was doing something and there was just way too many people there and there wasn't a lot of coordination. So one of the things that we had asked the Surgeon General's office to do was really be the coordinator, being the quarterback and say, okay, you're gonna be working with these organizations because at some point, some parts of the community weren't getting bottled water, some parts were not, some were getting filters. And so part of our role was just really trying to coordinate everything. And you're right, a lot to deal with at an early age, but definitely has been a great experience and has propelled me to knowing um, that, you know, there's a lot of still work to be done and there needs to be more voices like mine at the table to speak to that. So when you, um, I guess when you like think about public health and like social determinants, what do you feel like is the biggest issue that affects like black people in this country? Whew, that's a hard one. Um, so I might have to give you two answers because I think they're both deeply important. One mm -hmm. um, is structural racism um, that deeply impacts how we live in society as Black men, as Black people um, in America and around the world. Um, but then I would say second is climate change because that um, climate change impacts Black and Brown communities in a more significant way than any other type of community. And so when climate change really goes down and you start seeing hurricanes and different weather patterns, uh, warmer areas, that's gonna impact black and brown communities quite deeply. So I would say, and mm. under all of that is structural racism to why we're even in that place to begin with. And so I would say those are the two biggest public health issues that I think affect um, black people right now. Could you, could you repeat, why do you feel like climate change affects um, black people? Yeah, so climate, climate change uh, affects everything that we do in general within society. So um, even when you think of flooding or when you think of the different types of hurricanes that you've seen over the past couple of years that have affected the um, southern region of the United States, mm -hmm. which communities are the ones that tend to be hurt the most? Usually the poorer communities, folks that are already marginalized, vulnerable communities. When you think of Katrina, when that happened, also impacted a vulnerable community. So when we think about all these aspects of climate change, some of the first people that are impacted are those marginalized black and brown communities. So for example, in some of the wider communities, they might be further up the hill. They might have resources to leave early. Um, if you are a person that is already being impacted, and this is why I say they're coupled together with structural racism. Um, and the fact that if, you're, if you are already an oppressed group of people, you don't always ha you don't have the luxury of just being able to leave and go to another state when you when you know a hurricane is coming you still have to make money you still have to provide for your family and so that's why i said they're deeply coupled with each other if anything okay. climate change just exacerbates structural racism yeah okay that's interesting I'm <laughs> it's like um I'm trying to figure out a way to like articulate what, what my thought process, but it's, 
it's kind of like you said that th- those are the two answers, right? And yeah, those would be my two answers. If if you had to say most important, and they're both feeding into each other. Yeah, yeah, and they're they're tied together. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna come back. I'm gonna come back. I'm wasting too much time on this talk. So you can go ahead, Sir Royce. I'm gonna come back with, with my question. That's good, bro. That's, that's a good one. Um, my my question. Uh, you mentioned before about the competitive like nature that you and your dad had. Mm-hmm. Uh, when was the time that you actually beat him? When was the first time you beat him at something? Oh man, that's a good question. Um. I want to say the first time I ever beat him was my senior year of high school. And so I mentioned to you that I went to a military Catholic school in DC and uh, you know, we have ranking systems. So my dad, when he went to um, my high school, he graduated as um, a captain, a cadet captain. And so that was his highest rank that he had while he was at the school. Cause when you become a senior, that's when you get your officer ranks. And I beat him by be- becoming a cadet major. I was the um, executive officer of the regimental band. So I actually was able to, I marched in a, um, Bush's second inauguration. Not a big fan of Bush, but the fact that I was walking in an inauguration was a pretty uh, big, important thing. And so that's where I would say I beat him, where I beat him in rank. It was the first time I could gloat to him and be like, hey, you know, respect your, your, your superior officer. Um, because he'd always talked all the time growing up as a kid, how he was a cadet captain, a cadet captain this. And so the moment I beat him in that, it was definitely like the first time ever in my life that I was able to brag and I had bragging rights for life. How did he react to, um, to you? Uh, uh, I mean, like any typical father, you know, oh, well, well, I was only at the school for three years. If I was there for four years, I would have definitely been higher. And I was like, yo, you, you can't be out here trying to change the goalposts right here. I was like, I beat you. And what made it even worse at the time is um, I remember uh, our commanding officer had actually looked at me wanting to be um, a lieutenant colonel. Um, and I actually declined that because at the time in my life, I was really, I was, I didn't find my purpose yet. And so I was always like, I never wanted to be the first person, the, the person out front. I'd rather be like the VP. I want to be the person in the background. And so the fact that that was even discussed to where I could have even gotten higher. My dad was just like, yo, well, 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 you know, you only, you're only one rank higher than me. And so it's this game we play actually every probably family dinner like it comes out at least once or twice a year where I'll say something like, hey, well, at least I was, um, hey, uh, cadet uh, major Buckley t- for you, sir. And so we, it's kind of like our own little game that we play back and forth. But it's the only thing I can say that it was the earliest memory of really beating him because when it comes to running, he was also a track star, both in high school and college. I have never been able to beat my dad in a running race, even to this point. Um, he still has records at Cornell that have not been beaten yet. And so that's like the one area he, I might be, he might beat me in a race, but I will heal up faster than him at this point in time in life. But he can still just by raw power and mindset, he could still probably beat me in a running race right now. Hmm. How old is your dad? 
Uh, he is sixty-two. Oh, you say he can still beat you in the in the race? Yeah. So he he's actually a track coach still. Um, he has about I want to say seven championships in this area, the DC Maryland area, for both boys and girls. And one of the uh, he was always known as like one of those track coaches that would race his team, his fastest guy, just to prove that hey, I'm still faster than all of y'all. So listen carefully so you can learn. And so he is a pretty, he, he's insanely, he's pretty fast. <laughs> uh, that, it sounds like, is, <laughs> no, that's pretty cool. So what was it like? I, I know you, you said that um, your parents are. Um, immigrants? Uh, yeah, they're, they're immigrants. But I'm thinking where you said they're from uh, Antigua. Yeah, so um, in, my mom's from Antigua and my dad's from St. Kitts Nevis. Okay, so like, what was that like, um, you know, uh, being the child of an immigrant uh, growing up in the United States? Um, good question. I've actually had this thing where I've had to like, I've been reflecting a lot on that because I feel like at first it didn't seem like that big of a deal to me. Um, but the older I've gotten, the more I've actually started looking back on my life and realizing the influence that being a first generation um, American, like what did that feel like? And so for me, um, I would say education was key. Um, between my parents and my grandparents, and I also have the really good pr- and privilege of getting to know both sets of my grandparents growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, Education was key. And one of the things that my mom instituted for at least my sister and I was that every year we would go to Antigua for like, so like, you know, you guys might send your kids to like summer camp. I got shipped to Antigua for like a month. It was my mother's way of cultural humility for me so I could learn where I came from. And every now and then when we would go to Antigua, we might go visit a different island just so she could um, It really helped me understand where I came from. And so growing up as a kid, you always felt like you were, you were American, but you weren't fully American. Like there was this other part of yourself that was also robust because I also have this robust Caribbean heritage as well. But then when I would go to the Caribbean and go to Antigua, I was never fully accepted as Antiguan because I was always considered American. So I always felt like you were in this dual role where you never really belonged anywhere. But within that gray area, I think is where my sister and I blossomed very much because it required us to learn and understand so many things about two separate cultures and how to navigate between the two. And so, as I said, education was key. My dad was a very strict father, you know, so um, a traditional Caribbean family where, you know, my mother was very much the caregiver of my sister and I, and my dad was kind of like the workaholic. So he was always working. And anytime that I did anything that was like at the level of, you know, to his level, it was like, he was the disciplinarian, like the chief judge disciplinarian. And so we had that relationship actually for quite some time until I would say high school, when I think we started to get to know each other. Cause at the time, um, And I would actually say the majority of my life, my dad always took me to school. So my dad always dropped me to school. My mom always picked me up from school. And so often sometimes you start to learn like certain, like my dad was really big into the news, like NPR was like his thing. 
And I started realizing as I got older, I just started listening to NPR the same exact way he did. And so I'm starting to see these parallels and these similarities between him and my grandfather, um, how they're all peppered uh, throughout that whole Buckley line. Um, one of the things I did when I was 25 was I did this kind of 360 review of myself, you know, mm-hmm. trying to understand myself. One of my grandfathers, uh, my mom's father, would always say the 11th commandment was, you must know thyself. And so I like did this whole homage of like uh, an exploration of at 25, just understanding who I am and where did I get certain traits from? Like when I do this X, Y, Z, who did I get that from? My mom, my dad, my aunt, my uncle, who, who, who did I inherit that from? And during that end of that journey, I realized there were so many things that I was so much alike, like my father and my grandfather, that it actually surprised me because oftentimes people would always say I was like my mom. But then when I went and kind of peeled back that onion, I was like, yo, I am so much like my dad and grandfather. It was kind of scary because I always tried to be completely separate and different from them and try to make my own pathway, but then realize I just ended up becoming very much like them. Um, just in a different way. That's interesting. And you know, that that happens a lot. Like the more that we um, try to be different, we end up being the same. It's like our parents, you know, that's kind of weird. So very true. And it like kicks me on my butt every single time now. Um, It even makes me think about myself when like I decide to have kids and I I have a son or a daughter, how much of my influence will actually like rub off on them, both directly and indirectly. Um, So, yeah, it's been definitely an interesting um, journey on that reflection of myself. Yeah. So So you mentioned the similarities. I'm sorry, Dr. Young, you, you were saying something? Uh, yeah, I was just going to ask, um, like, what are, what other uh, jewels did you get from your grandparents? I know you said your grandfather, uh, you know, taught you to to know thyself. That was the, the uh, 11. Oh, man. Like, what, what so many, jewels? so many things. So I'm closest to my dad's father, my grandfather, because he actually lives here in D.C. and I grew up with him. So um, so my grandfather here, my, my paternal grandfather is a pastor. So I grew up also in the church. So there was deep influences. And when I say the church, we, it was a family church. My dad was the deacon. I was an usher. My mom played the piano, like all of us were involved. And so kind of goes to the idea of like how I was brought up in this very tight Caribbean kind of community. And for my grandfather, I would say he is definitely the, the, um, I don't even know what the word you would use, but he he definitely started off the 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 black excellence, I guess you could say, in our family. And so one fact about so I, I graduated with my doctorate with, uh, at around thirty three. My grandfather, when he immigrated to the United States, he started high school at thirty three. And mm. to just see how many things have changed in a generation. So and he worked his way all the way up to getting his doctorate. So he's the first Dr. Buckley within our family. And I get to be the second one in that regard. And so when it comes to my grandfather, so many pearls of wisdom that he's passed on. Um, one of them that, you know, you guys probably relate to really well with even this podcast, he would say, Brian, we're in this world for two reasons. One, to make the world a better place with whatever God-given talents we've been given. And two, to mentor and coach the next generation to build on that work. 
Mm. My grandfather is just like a, he's like a, a record of just quotables. You know, he would even say things like, Brian, the doors of opportunity are as wide as you qualify for them. This whole idea that I should always be hungry for more excellence. And so every time I was, um, every time I graduated from everything, my grandfather was like, so what's next? So I did my undergrad. He was like, what's next? Okay, I'm going to go do my master's. You know, I'm feeling pretty proud. I got my master's. He's like, okay, well, what's next after that? You know, and even the only time he actually stopped asking was after I graduated with my doctorate. He just said, you know, Brian, you've done good. <laughs> and that was like, <laughs> at that point, I was like, I made it. Uh, but so my grandfather has always been that person that's been kind of the driver of this idea of education and Black excellence. He's a CEO of his own company. He owns a chain of um, um, group homes throughout the D.C. area. He's built his empire from nothing. And mm. he came from a single parent household. You know, where, you know, his mother was dirt poor in Antigua in a village in a hut. And he kind of his escape from Antigua was really through the ministry. He was a traveling minister. And then that brought him to the United States. And it's really where he became himself. So I learned a lot from him on just really this idea of hustling and being hungry. For my other grandfather, my maternal grandfather, I would only get to visit him um, when I would go visit Antigua. But when I tell you this man was the most laid back person in the world, he was the most laid back person in the world. Uh, he just was like, his view of life was just really chill. He, that's why he was like, you know, he's like, know yourself and find what makes you happy. He would always say, Brian, he never asked me what I wanted to become when I was a kid. He would always be like, Brian, what problem do you want to solve in this world? He was the entrepreneur in the family, um, and he was always testing out new things and always involved in different things and was very regimented in how he went about life. Um, and so every time I think, and also when I think of my, my appreciation for wine, I usually think of him. He was a wine connoisseur. He like had so many different types of wine. And he taught me the beauty of wine and pairing wine with different foods. And so I had really two very different experiences with both of my, grand, my, my um, grandfathers, which is just, I think, has really made me who I am today. That was cool. So if I'm eating the ribeye, uh, what kind of uh, wine would you recommend? What kind of wine would your grandfather recommend to me? You probably, it depends on your type of taste and palate, but you either uh, offer a red blend or uh, or maybe even a Melback, something a little bit on the drier end to really bring out some of the flavors in that ribeye. And so my appreciation for dry red wines definitely came from him. <laughs> and also I think this idea of networking and we're all connected because my grandfather is one of those, my maternal grandfather is one of those people that every day he would sit on his porch and people would pass by and he would always say hi to each and every person and have a conversation. This idea of community, I think, really came from him. And even my own, when people talk about me networking and they're like, oh, you're such a great networker. I'm like, I'm not being networking. I just, I'm generally curious about people. And I think I got that from my maternal grandfather. He was just a generally curious person about people and wanted to get to know who they are. And then my paternal grandfather was like, the hustle, like education is key. Um, and actually a quote that my grandmother would use that my grandfather would always play off of is she would always say education was one's passport through life. And my grandfather deeply believed in that. 
and this idea that you navigate this world through your educational achievements. So, got me going down memory lane out here, guys, man. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, oh, you can go. No, I was gonna, um, I was gonna, uh, actual question. We really already asked the question, Brian. Uh, the question was, what does fatherhood mean to you? And uh, you gave me a real good answer. I want to read it to you. It's actually a quote. Uh, quote, it's a father's duty to give his sons a fine chance by, by George Eliot. So can you elaborate on that a little bit more, Brian? Yeah. Um, so as you can clearly see, I'm a big quotes person as I've quoted my grandfather and fathers and all that. And so I, I think I like this quote and, you know, you don't have to say, you know, it's like, it's a father's duty to give his children a fine chance, you know, broadening out, this is back in those days, but this idea that, you know, you pave it forward for your children. Um, And I think for me, fatherhood, and when I do end up hopefully getting the privilege to be a father in the future, um, this idea of being able to be vulnerable and share my own mistakes, my own successes. So back to that quote that I mentioned to you earlier about my own vision for myself, being a nexus for change through my blessings, failures, and community. There have been many things I've been blessed with. I've been blessed with having a robust set of men in my life that have been able to be role models to what a man should be. Um, but there have also been failures that I've experienced either due to that maybe toxic masculinity that does come through the Caribbean side or even pride as a whole. And so there are a lot of failures that have happened, but I also have had this robust community that's been there to be my holding environment and support me. And so I think a father's duty is to really be that nexus to help their children understand what they have been blessed with, understanding that failure will happen, but failure does not define you, that failure is just merely an opportunity to begin again in a more innovative way. And that you have a community that you are cultivating for your children to help them build on the work that you've started. They all have their own dreams. They'll have their own aspirations. But you are merely making sure that the playing field is free of a lot of debris. And so that's what I think that quote means to me um, as I think about fatherhood and the duty of what it means to be a father. Yeah, it's good stuff. Real good. Um, so next um, next question I have for you. Uh, when you think about, you know, when you do become a dad, um, what do you think you'll take from uh, your dad and your grandfather in regards to how they raised you? Uh, like as far as the example that you plan to set, uh, like well, what, what, what nuggets do you think you'll take uh, from them? It's not funny when you think of the nuggets of when you think of what you want to do, it's either you try to do the same exact thing because you think it was a good plan or you try to do the complete opposite. So there's a moments of opposite where I think one of the things that I would do opposite, both my dad and grandfather are extremely busy. And even as it's funny, I think I told you earlier how I always wanted to not be this busy person and I ended up becoming the busiest person by far probably beat both of my grandfather and my dad combined. And so one of the things that I want to take is the importance of being able to spend time with your kid, because I felt like as a kid growing up, 
I didn't always have that like father son time with my dad. And so in many ways, I want to make sure that I can be that change in our family to have those moments. So one of the things I want to institute, and my wife has probably heard me talk about this, I have like a whole game plan on fatherhood, which she thinks is hilarious, is, you know, I want to have like dates with my kids separately, and I want to get to know them. I want to be able to, the whole idea of cultivating their interests and finding out what are their joys, their passions, um, what do they dream about? I want to have those moments. And so no matter what, however busy I am, how can I make sure I carve out time so they know that whatever time they have with their dad is a very sacred moment. And I think something that I didn't see always growing up in my life that I want to at least try to change. Um, another thing I would say is passing on the whole idea of hard work. That's something I gained from both my dad and my grandfather, this idea you need to work hard, you're going to fall down, but this idea of grit and resilience, um, because you need that grit and how to cultivate that. Um, because sometimes they gave me some really tough love where, you know, they watched me fall on my face a couple of times and they watched me fail. Um, but it wasn't so much about the failure, it was about me learning how to get up on my own and keep on pushing forward. Um, and knowing that, you know, I'm not going to let this define me, I'm going to try again. And so I think that's one thing that I've gotten from them that I'm really going to try to pass on. Um, and then I think last probably is one thing I think my dad and my grand, both my grandfathers were really good. And most of the father, like people I consider father figures in my life is the importance of storytelling and being able to talk about the goods and bads about our history and being a man in our society. So my great grandfather, you know, you want to talk about the definition of a rolling stone, you know, he was the definition. So my grandfather is one out of 18 children that he knows about. Um, and so my grandfather tried to change that for his family where he's like, you know, we are going to have we're going to try to have marriages and have, you know, a together family. We don't need all these children everywhere. And so I think all of us kind of choose our one thing that we want to change. Uh, my grandfather chose like, you know what, I want to be in, uh, I want to be in wedlock and have my children. My dad, his change that he did differently from my grandfather was he made sure he was at every single event that I ever had. So if I had a, a, a recital, if I had uh, uh, track me or any type of thing, he was there. He may not have always been present, but he was there. Uh, and so I think I'm going to try to pave that forward and um, build on that work that they've started and really think about that, like that having that date with your children and really getting to know them and build on their interests. That's, that's good stuff. Good stuff. You know, um, this, <laughs> like, I'm gonna rewind and go back to like the climate change and uh, structural racism. And it's been tumbling in my head, like since you spoke on it, like how to ask the question. And I guess the best way would be um, to ask, do you feel like um, structural racism is rooted in climate change? Structural racism rooted in climate change. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you could actually make that argument, yeah. Um, to some degree, the reason that the earth is getting warmer to some degree 
is through the industrial revolution in which when you think of the black bodies that made the United States to the point of where it is, to some degree contributed when you think of coal mines, when you think of all the forced labor and um, all of these things, they all contribute to climate change. So one of the things that like, uh, probably the best, better way to answer this is uh, a paper that I was writing with a buddy of mine, we were talking about this idea of racial atonement. And this idea that for us to move forward to solving the problems of the future and of the present day, we have to understand our past to how we got here. And so there's this idea of, okay, we need to understand when um, gerrymandering was used in a racist way, when we think about redlining, when we think about uh, bank loans, when we think about who got to benefit from Mm. the industrial complex and um, even when you think of the things that did contribute to climate change, although it contributes to climate change, it did pat some people's pockets that built wealth. And there were certain people that were left out and certain people that, you know, were privileged in. And so there's this idea of privileging with process. And so I think they're deeply related with each other as we think about how we address both. I think in general, when it comes to structural racism, one of the key things um, is one, acknowledging it, two, working to understand how we got here and understanding what policies are still in place to this day that still contribute to people being not having certain opportunities. How do we rectify that? And then even though we do all these things, and let's say we, we fix all the structural racism over the next five years, big one, we did all that. <laughs> the the byproduct of what happened in the past still contributes to climate change, which we're still trying to pursue. Um, and so I think that it's going to be very interesting. Um, and even when you think of when it talks about climate change, you know, there's a racial undertoning of that too, in the sense of which countries are, I mean, it's funny that all the countries that benefited the most from all the carbon gases are the ones which are usually from white, historically white nations are the ones now telling all the other colored groups and colored nations, oh, well, you can't do that anymore. There is still a privileging process with that. And so I think that's where I say that they're deeply related with each other. Um, And so we also have to be very keen and alert on, even when we are talking about how we address this problem that is a a global problem, how do we make sure we do it in an equitable way that also allows different groups within the globe to also rise up to a level in which they can take care of their people um, and we can see more diversity and wealth outside of the traditional white population. Hopefully that makes sense. Oh yeah, yeah, it does. It does. Got me really philosophical here today. So <laughs> that's a good thing. <laughs> All right. So I guess um I know we're getting close to time. Um, but I, I have one last question before we head out. Go for um, it. like throughout the, the night you talked a lot about change. Mm-hmm. Um, like personal change, um, making changes in the world professionally. Um, how, let's say like when you retire, you know, you, you sitting on the beach, uh, you know, watching the waves, how how are you going to gauge like the changes that you've made in your life? 
Um, that's a good question. Um, I think the way I would gauge on knowing if I made a change is I think based off of the people I was able to have an impact on. Um, mm. And I know that seems so superficial to some degree. You know, I hope that I can, you know, be credited that I helped build a coalition of, you know, system changes around X, Y, and Z, which I think would be great. But then even more on a personal level, I feel like it's the interactions that I've had with different people. What Was I able to inspire to cultivate excellence in others? Because it's I'm also humble enough to know that I may not be the one that makes all the change, but I might be the person that be, is able to feed and empower and um, another individual that will end up changing the world in a different way. And so I think that's how I will measure myself based off of the relationships I had. Was I able to make people feel good about themselves, feel um, just like they knew the passion and helping them build purpose in their life. I think that's one of the things that I would look at as the measure on how I will view my success in the future. I kind of, I have this actually, this mantra that I uh, always, so, you know, Brian Buckley, you know, I love the letter B. Um, and I have this mantra, which is kind of, I call it my B mindset mantra, which is this idea of be hungry, be curious and be humble. And there's this idea that, you know, I want to look at my life at the end as, hey, I was hungry for every single opportunity that presented itself. You know, I, I went after everything that I could and I was that was put in front of me. But then there was always this idea of being curious. That I was always curious about the world, um, curious about people, being able to cultivate those relationships. And then last, being humble, knowing that I didn't get there by myself and where I am right now, I have not gotten here by myself that there's a whole entire community of people that I have been able to meet that have inspired me. Even um, when, I, when I got to discover you guys too in your podcast, I was like, man, this is a really cool podcast. I actually sent it to like four of my friends that are fathers right now. I was like, yeah, you guys need to be cooked in right here. This idea that, you know, we can all find each other in this world of ours and realize that community setting. And so that's how I say relationships are so key and how I will define my life at that very end and off of that B mantra that I have for myself. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. I would say, uh, Dr. Young, this is another Hall of Famer. What you think, man? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a Hall of Famer for sure. See, I, we kind of got this thing going. We got a string of Hall of Fame episodes, and this is another one. But I think for the Hall of Famers, I want to come back and uh, do a part two because I think uh, some more to that story, man, especially when you start having kids, man. <laughs> I I, story, man. Yeah, the stories will probably be quite epic. <laughs> uh, Brian, uh, my last question to you. Uh, we have a lot of dads listening. Like you say, you already shared uh, to four dads that you know, and I appreciate you for, for doing that. Um, if you had to give advice to any dad that's listening right now, uh, what would that be? Ooh, um, well, that, that, that might be the question. That's the hardest one to answer. So not knowing exactly everything, but I guess going back to what I said earlier, get to know your kid, like, and have that one-on-one time with your kid and get to know who they are, because oftentimes, um, Fathers have such a deep 
um, impact on how their kids view the world. And also make sure that you are vulnerable with your kids. Um, there are so many things that your kids can learn from you, both the goods and the bads. And oftentimes I feel like at least what I saw in my life, and we'll see how well I keep to this. Often dads try to present the best thing, like, hey, I've always been this, but not really always being vulnerable with our failures. And I think our kids can learn so much from those failures and also so much from those um, successes and blessings. And so just always being authentic with your kid and finding those moments and making those minutes into moments with your kids to be able to pass on wisdom and knowledge and lived experience. Yeah, great answer, man. Again, uh, this has been uh, one of my favorite episodes, man. Uh, again, I appreciate you for taking the time out, man. Uh, we definitely have to you know, stay connected and uh, you know see how we can help each other change this world that we're living in because there's still a lot going on. There's a lot going on. I'm, I'm yeah. trying to retire myself. I always tell people, I'm like, yeah, I work to the point where I have to retire myself. And I was like, there's a lot of work, so it's not happening anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise, brother, man, likewise. So, uh, Dr. Young, did you have anything else before we uh, shut it down? Uh, no, I didn't have any more questions. Uh, I just want to say thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us. It's been a great interview. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, Brian, don't hang up. We're going to do a little post game after this, so uh, yeah, we can uh, talk a little bit more for, uh, for a few more minutes. But, uh, Myself for Sir Ray Spialis, for Dr. Ryan Young, and also for our special guest, Brian O'Fuckley. Uh, can I say Dr. Brian? Is that okay? Yeah, Dr. Brian. There you go. You deserve it, bro. But uh, yeah, thanks again for uh, taking the time out. Thanks for listening to WTF interviews, and stay tuned for further announcements.